0: Welcome to the Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business, without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Brett. How are you? I'm well. How ha- you? I'm great. Happy Monday. We're Happy recording Monday. We are recording this on a Monday. I have a question for you, Brett. Oh, you do? As I uh, usually do. Two questions. Oh, no. It's a a two-part question. One, you're going to jail. You've been arrested. (laughs) Who's your first phone call? (laughs) (laughs) And then the other one is uh, last meal. You're on death row. What's your last meal? Because obviously you made the wrong first phone call. (laughs) When did you think of this question? Right now, right as we're (laughs) we're sitting here. My first
1: call? Yeah, I forgot the first call. Yeah, that's...
0: you have to pick a meal that you would that would be uh, the only meal you have for the rest of your life. I mean
1: my uh, my go to and my cheat is always pizza. Pizza. So I'll just stick with that.
0: Nice. Pizza is right. hard it, to argue. For a vegan
1: that's a cheat, yeah. right? Like I'll eat, I'll eat the cheese. Right. You know, I would imagine that a non-vegan would say, "Well, just get the pepperoni on it." I mean, you're, you know. Now you're wilder. Your Wild you as going well. Right? You might as well. Right. And I I would just say just plain cheese pizza.
0: Yeah. I would say that that's probably pizza, like a good, you know, New York pizza by the slice on a paper plate. Yeah, I mean, it would be the one just, thing I miss the most as a vegan. Fan, you know? Fantastic, yeah, right? Yeah, Let's yeah. go. Can I? Can I just real quick? I know our our guest is waiting. Go, please. What's your favorite holiday? My favorite holiday, I guess, Thanksgiving because and not because it's of its, you know, tradition, yeah, but yeah. because of our family tradition mm-hmm. of we're always together. Yeah. We usually travel either out to California to visit Chris and Wendy, right. you know, or they come here, but we the family's all together and we it's a time of reflecting on, you know, all the things that we're grateful for. Yeah,
1: I, I like Thanksgiving as well for similar, but one of the main reasons why I like it is because from a work perspective, you can put everything down. Nobody is working and nothing is happening. And so you can truly immerse yourself in your family
0: and the holiday and enjoy right. the time. Yeah. And so I, you know, I just, I love that. All right. So our guest today is Lauren Sobel. Lauren is an attorney, an editor, a speaker, and a podcast host. She is based in New York City. She, although she began her legal career in Miami. And she began her career as a business litigator as she climbed the ranks to partner at a prestigious firm. But for the last decade, Lauren has dedicated her career to legal technology. She works for Thomson Reuters, the practical law litigation service. And in that role, she applies her experience as a business litigator to develop easy to understand practice guides, practical guides for other attorneys to help Lawyers and the legal profession work more efficiently. In addition to her role at Practical Law, Lauren is one of the hosts of The Hearing, an award winning legal podcast from Thomson Reuters, second only to The Practice podcast. She speaks about and writes about cutting edge topics like legal ethics, technology, DEI, and the legal professional, and data privacy and social media. She's everywhere. Welcome, Lauren.
2: Well, thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: Welcome, Lauren. Can I? Can
1: I? Please sort of venture a guess here that the most listened to episode of Lauren's podcast has to be the interview with you. <laughs> oh, I think uh, I that's... would imagine, right, Lauren? I
0: mean, the yeah.
2: it was a big hit. It I, was a big I, hit. If Definitely. you're talking
0: about most listened to in this office, then probably <laughs> not. But probably not. Probably, probably not. Even <laughs> even there, probably, probably not. not. Just yeah, let's be honest. The podcast is great. They really get fantastic speakers, and I was probably the the weak point in that, in that list. They had an opening. No, not at all. Not at all. All right. Let's talk about Lauren. So Lauren, you went to law school and then you started practicing. You practiced for how long as a litigator?
2: So in total, it was probably about 10 years, including some federal clerkships. I I actually started practicing in New York. I was at Nixon Peabody, and then I also clerked for a magistrate judge in the Southern District of New York. And then I moved to Miami for a district court clerkship with Judge Leonard. And that was great. That was supposed to be for two years. And I wound up staying in Miami for seven, which was unexpected. But I I resumed practice there. I took the bar in Florida five years after graduating, I think, law school and five years after taking the New York bar and the New Jersey bar. And I don't recommend that to anybody. That was really painful taking a bar five years out of school.
0: You know, that's funny. I was going to ask you about that because, you know, on on the one hand, I would think it would be maybe a little easier because you have a better frame of reference. You've been practicing for a few years. You kind of understand things a little differently than you did coming out of law school, but you're saying not so much.
2: No, I mean, from what I recall, and, and it's all a bit of a blur now, but, you know, the, the bar exam is not necessarily so practical, sort of sort of hard to uh, <laughs> reconcile yeah. actual practice and, true. and, you know, filling out that multiple choice and, and doing those essays. If I had to do it over again, wouldn't have done it five years later.
0: Gotcha. So anyway, you, you practice as a litigator. you did you did multiple clerkships. You practiced as a litigator. You made your way to partner. And then somehow you left the law. Can you tell us a little bit about that decision making or was there a decision making process? Tell
2: yeah, sure, it. sure. So, like you mentioned, I had made partner, but I had been thinking about moving back to New York for a few years, even before that. You know, the economy was pretty terrible. We were coming out of the the Great Recession. And I knew at a certain point, you know, that I wanted to go back to New York, but that when I went back to New York, I didn't want to go to a law firm. I was sort of, you know, done with that. I did not have, you know, a book of business to take with me. And I just, I didn't want to start over. And I just didn't want that New York City, you know, big firm lifestyle. So in the meantime, I was in Miami, you know, I was enjoying what I was doing, but also, you know, sort of keeping my eye, eye out for other things. And a friend of mine was working at practical law and basically called me and said, hey, there's this job you might be interested in, you know, back in New York. It's very different from legal practice, but you still get to use your, your litigation experience and your legal skills is it something you're interested in? And, and I was, and that was the opportunity for me to move back to New York. So I took it and it's been really a dream job in, in many, many ways. I've been there 10 years, hard to believe, but yeah, it's a great, great place to work.
1: Was there any sort of struggle internally making that shift from working at a law firm and a litigator to, you know, working on, on this for practical law, sort of on that side of the industry?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people who transition from, from practicing law to, you know, going to these, I'll put them in the other category, but, you know, one that comes to mind is professional positions at law firms and in professional development or business development. You know, there's, at least for me, there was a little bit of a struggle about giving up my identity as, as a practicing attorney, as a litigator. Would people, respect me, you know, that sort of thing. But the beauty of my job is, is the whole reason we are hired to do what we do is because of our experience. And, you know, at least at the company and at Practical Law, we are sort of the bread and butter of the product. And it's opened so many doors. I've done so many different things. But, you know, one of the things I think I like the most is I can spend a lot of time researching, you know, legal trends. Whereas in practice, I was often, you know, thrown into the fire and you're, you're just putting out fires, not necessarily really appreciating the law or, or digging in deep to the law. You're just trying to, you know, do things for your client and, and, and get to a certain point. So yeah, it's great.
0: I don't want to dig too deep, but you said when you decided to move to New York, you knew you didn't want a law firm career. You had already decided, okay, I've ruled this out. And I'm curious about that, you know, that consideration. Was it driven by the fact that you were a partner and you didn't have a big book of business? Or were you tired of billable hours or just tired of lawyers in general? Was there one thing that drove you there?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of everything. I, I think at the time, I thought it was very challenging to to do business development and to build a book of business, particularly as a woman. I think the irony in that is now I have so much more confidence and, and a lot of what I do at my current job is business development. And I, you know, in retrospect, I have no doubt that I would have been able, you know, to build that book of business, but I'm not going to lie, you know, the the lifestyle, the billable hours, you know, all of that played into it. And I, I at some point I was like, you know, as a litigator and and maybe that was, I don't want to say mistake, but sort of something I should have looked at more closely in law school. I love writing. I love researching. I, I don't like arguing with people. I don't like being adversarial. So, you know, perhaps a different area of law would have been better suited to me if I were going to continue at a law firm. But yeah, no, I, I think it was it was multiple factors that sort of right. led me to where I am now.
1: So tell us a little bit about what practical law is and what your day to day is and, and how that works.
2: Sure. So I guess if you had asked me that question, you know, at the very beginning, my day was pretty much researching and writing and drafting, and that's that's really evolved a lot over the years. And I, I guess I should take a step back for people who are not familiar with practical law. Mm-hmm. It is, I guess, a research tool for attorneys. It's it's not Westlaw. We are integrated with Westlaw, but it's really practical guidance. So, for example, let's say you know you're a young associate, you've never taken a deposition before. You know, we have materials that walk you through, you know, the practical guidance, the how-tos, not just the stuff that's in the rules. It's the stuff that, you know, we learned and practice. And so we sort of put that into our guidance. That's just one small piece of what we do. You know, we also cater to partners. So if you need to pitch to a client or, you know, let's say you're trying to teach a corporate client about litigation holds and how to properly do them. We create template presentations, you know, that you can then take and tailor to that. So those are those are just some examples. But again, just just sort of scratching the surface.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like I'm from, you know, we're familiar with it ourselves, but it's a tool that's available for those that you know, who have access to it. The the tool gives you practical advice, not just like what's the law or what's the, you know, procedure, but How do you actually take that and apply it in a practical setting? Because I think a lot of people, you know, just lack that little link, that tiny little link of how do you take this rule or this, you know, procedure and apply it to a client or a case is something that a lot of people fail at or they don't have a a guide or a, a mentor to guide them through that. So great great tool
1: okay. is there some component related to technology and sort of the evolution of the practice
2: absolutely so one one of the things i'm working on now is generative ai and mm-hmm. i really do think that is going to transform practice you know in the in the same way you know we used to research using using books at least in law school i was still learning how to research using books and and with Products like Westlaw, you know, that's completely transformed the way you do legal research. And I think generative AI will will be the next big thing for litigators and, and transactional attorneys alike.
1: So it's funny, you hear from different people, not to get into the specifics of practical law at all, at all or what's coming down the road, but generally speaking, right, There, it depends on who you talk to. It's whether or not lawyers are going to be replaced entirely or AI or whatever technology is coming down the pike is going to augment, as you say, augment the practice, right? And make it, instead of spending hours and hours, you know, digging through case law, you know, you'd be able to sort of put in some prompts on AI and kind of either figure out what cases apply and what the rule of law is and help you sort of draft a pleading or document. But there's also other features, right? I know there's some other AI out there about if you're in front of a particular judge, how a judge is going to rule or how you know, certain judges in a certain jurisdiction, whether it's state court or federal court on a particular issue, have ruled and, and, and could potentially rule on your case.
2: That's exactly right. And I think that's the big fear, right? Is AI going to replace lawyers? And and the answer we have to that is no, absolutely not. It's it's just like, you know, when Westlaw replaced books, it didn't replace lawyers. Mm-hmm. It's the same sort of idea. So yeah, I, I think it's exciting. I think it will make our jobs easier. You know, it's a learning curve. I think there's an adaptation period and, and people have to get comfortable with it. But once they do, they'll see it's it's really not a threat, you know, so much as just another tool in an attorney's arsenal.
0: So, Right. Yeah. I think it's the ones who, the attorneys who embrace it and learn how to utilize it properly as a tool that will, uh, you know, advance the most.
1: Well, and I do think there's going to be some some use with the public, right? AI that lawyers won't won't be needed anymore for certain basic, things. Right. Yeah, some basic things, right? I mean, you have services now online to you know give you a will or a contract, you know, or something basic, and I think you know I could see the next step of using AI or some other tech for the public not to need a lawyer to make give more access. But as you get into the complexities of transactions or complexities of litigation, and you involve the human aspect of it and experience, I don't think we're we're not there. I mean, there may come a day. We'll be long gone, <laughs> I think, by that time, but i I do think maybe there'll come a day where you know you don't need lawyers at all, but But I think that the evolution of it is, you know to me, it sounds like AI is going to really be used for the the complex stuff to augment you know the practice areas that that we're talking about litigation and solvency that we know and then maybe some other areas as well com- complex transactions etc and
2: if it goes wrong it will it will keep litigators in business that's for sure right,
1: well, <laughs> there's going to be litigation over the tech and there's going to be litigation over I'm sure yep. right and yeah. and limitations on all that stuff and it's clearly it is not perfect yet but it is far from it there's definitely some issues i know i get i'm sure you guys get the same level of emails from all sorts of startups with AI and and trying to you know
0: get in front of us yeah you know. it's a constant stream of solicitations that are probably AI generated too <laughs> but they're they're promoting AI to us right that right, they, that right. They want to test
1: yeah and and I think there's some good use for it you know I could definitely see that you know how to present this case if you have you know this jury pool in front of this jurisdiction with these issues you know may be very helpful um or a judge and how is this judge going to rule and give some
0: predictability potentially to your client. Yeah, and I think there also is a the possibility for further guidance. Like you were saying, oftentimes the client will say, well, how's the judge going to, you know, is the judge going to agree with X or Y? And we typically would say, well, you know, it's hard to say, but based on my past experience, now with AI, you may be able to say, it's hard to say, but you know, statistically, there's a seventy percent chance they'll go this way based on you know past results. Sure. You know, using an AI tool of some sort, so you could, you know, clients could be guided with more um, you know analytical certainty than you know in the past. Yeah, for sure. It shouldn't necessarily change the way a client decides, makes a decision. At least I hope they don't make a decision just based on those statistics, but. To me it's another data point for a client in making decisions. Exactly. So they they have this data that this judge denies 70% of this type of motion and then that coupled with the guidance from, you know, sophisticated knowledgeable counsel can help a client make better informed decisions.
2: Absolutely.
0: So, you know, one other thing I know, you, Lauren, you've uh, you've written and spoken about is, you know, the data privacy field. And I know that's a very broad area, but I know I saw a specific reference to data privacy in social media. Can you, is there yeah. something you can uh, share about that?
2: Yeah, sure. So when I started at Practical Law, I barely used LinkedIn, for example. I was not big on social media. And as an example of the many things that this job has allowed me to do, one of the things I did was sort of lead our team on social media efforts and really like learning how to use LinkedIn and and using it for... You know, research, but also marketing and and all these things. In the course of that, I I learned a bit about data privacy, and then I actually wound up teaching New York City public school fifth graders about social media privacy and and data privacy, which was super fun. I did that for a couple of years before COVID. It's something I really enjoy speaking on, um, particularly I think. Less on on like things like data privacy breaches, but more on, you know, protecting yourself. And then from an attorney perspective, the ethical implications of using social media, which I think, you know, many more attorneys are aware of that now, but certainly five, 10 years ago, I I think there was more sort of usage of LinkedIn without really thinking about how they implicated the ethical rules, um, professional responsibility rules. So yeah, I've done some research on that and spoken on that. I've done a, a video on it. It's a topic I'm really interested in.
0: It is a fascinating topic and an area that's just constantly evolving. So you have two fifth graders in front of you. What would be some practical advice I think about you I talking privacy? about you, Nilsen. Yeah. What kind of uh, topics do you cover with fifth graders on? I'm I'm curious.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, less LinkedIn for fifth graders, as you can imagine. (laughs) But, you know, with TikTok, this was a couple of years ago now, but, you know, there were some serious privacy implications and the way the app was set up as a default sort of allowed, you know, sharing of, of data about these kids. Um, And so one of the things was sort of teaching them, you know, how to, how to change the settings and then just making the connection, you know, at that age, I don't, I don't know that the consequences really are there. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we talked about was, you know, reputation and how, even if you post something online and it gets deleted, it it may be there in perpetuity, you know yeah. and and the consequences yeah. of that. And it was I, I should say it's through a program with Fordham Law School. It's the Center for Law and Information Policy, and it was a partnership with them. and um it's it's a wonderful program and and they are still continuing to teach fifth graders. I think even fourth graders, they might be starting earlier now oh, wow. because kids are getting phones earlier and and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it is lawyers are still working through these issues too, right? I mean, LinkedIn to me is is pretty easy, not, not in terms of how to navigate and all the tools available, but I mean, it's a business forum, generally post-business. I know sometimes people bleed into the personal stuff and, uh, you know, but sometimes bring it back to business, sometimes not. But when you start getting outside of that, right in the and Instagram and I guess TikTok Facebook. and YouTube and Facebook. Facebook and all of that you know there, there's some sort of trickiness if for lack of a better word to it in how far to go and what to post and what you not know, to post what what <laughs> but more importantly what not to post and there's that fine line all right? sometimes a fine line sometimes very clear but sometimes a fine line
2: yeah absolutely
0: yeah and I think you know you're you know the lesson you're talking about for fifth graders applies equally to lawyers <laughs> <Yeah>. and other <laughs> professionals working in and around law firms that yeah. the things they say online are even if they edit or delete it later can still live on in perpetuity and and can be viewed as you know, not just a statement in isolation, not something you said in an elevator, but something you announced from the rooftop of the building, you know, to the world. Right. So, I, I mean, I would think that whatever you're teaching the fifth graders or maybe now
1: fourth graders can be adapted slightly, but can can be sure. taught to lawyers yeah. Yeah. as Absolutely. well. It's, it's the same standard supply. And it's the standard, you know, first it was email, right? If you think about email... And, you know, it was like, okay, I'm going to put anything in there, and it's just going to go away, and no one's going to ever see it. And then people started realizing, although you'd be surprised, they still (laughs) put stuff in writing. But, you know, people started to learn, okay, so emails. And then now with the technology, right, with, you know, social media, people initially were just putting everything up there, thinking it would go away, and realizing that it didn't. So now this generation, and I know with my kids, I know Jeff with his kids— you know, my standard is always if you don't mind it being on the front page of the paper and being there forever and walking into a job interview when you're 25 years old and someone saying, oh, I saw in, you know, when you were 12 or 13, you posted blah, blah, blah. You know, if you don't mind that, then send it out. And, Absolutely. You know, I think
2: that's the standard. Yeah. <laughs> that and is, that's the standard with the lawyers
1: to too, right? Emails yeah. and text, anything that you send out, you have to anticipate that it would be on the front page of the paper or even attached to a pleading, you know,
0: to to be filed before the court and not be yep. concerned about that. Yeah, these are great points. And I think a lot of people are not, in the beginning when you mentioned email, I remember at, you know, big law people, You every once in a while you'd see an email that was probably intended for one person and went to like the whole firm. <laughs> or, yep. and sometimes there were things that, were appropriate for that one person or a smaller group or whatever but I think the point is if it's not appropriate to be you know said in any broad setting you probably shouldn't be putting it in writing at all and I think you know a lot, of, a lot of people tend to be oh it's fine I can say this to so and so well until so and so mistakenly forwards it or whatever it is so the idea of being thoughtful about you know what you what you say and where you say it at a certain age, I don't I don't think that uh, you know, ever diminishes. If anything, I think it grows. The need to to censor your own statements.
1: Yeah. The practice of law is evolving forever, right? It is continuing to evolve and technology is has come in and AI is coming. Do you see any other trends? You said, you know, you research trends. I mean, do you see any of the trends that that, you know, may make a, a bigger shift in the practice?
2: I mean I think it'll be interesting in terms of just the the hybrid you know circumstances we're we're all in and how technology continues to shape you know the courts and and trials and and all those things there's a generation coming that does not want to be in the office that will avoid <laughs> in person things at all costs and I think that will will have a bigger impact on the law down the line. But yeah, I think technology is is the single driving factor of of what will change the law going forward.
0: Yeah. Do you think that that's accurate? That this generation doesn't want to come to the office? And I know you're, I know you're making a broad, you know, what broad generation brush statement. Is it this generation, what generation? The next generation. Yeah, What generation? Or, I know. But the, but I, I, it's in fairness, I just, <laughs> I, I, I think that some people have this idea or this notion that they don't want to be in the office, but maybe because you know they're just comfortable at home. But then, you know, in my experience, a lot of people who are resistant to coming to the office. When they ultimately do come to the office, they realize, hey, wait, actually, this is, not, this is not so bad. This is actually kind of good. I like this. So I think many, many who have this notion in their mind that they want to work from home will then find that it's kind of lonely working from home. And Zoom is not a, really a great replacement for you know, the social interactions and the direct personal communications that you know, in-person affords. Right. I don't
2: disagree with right. you. Oh, that, I'm not sure
0: that's not a, that's, She doesn't disagree. Uh, yeah, she doesn't disagree. The yeah, double well, negative. I mean, okay. She doesn't
1: agree, but she just doesn't disagree.
0: Yeah. No, I, I got take, it. Any any, any parting thoughts for our <laughs> listeners before we sign off, Lauren? Anything about technology, practical law, or your podcast? You want to put in a plug for the podcast?
2: Sure, happy to. Again, when I when I say all of the different, you know, hats I get to wear in my job, one of them is is podcast host and and Jeff, you've had the the pleasure of being deposed by me on the podcast. <laughs> Just kidding. I think it's a fun listen. I really enjoy doing it. I think our our guests have all really enjoyed doing it. So, yeah. I would say tune in right after you listen to the practice podcast. Yeah, of
0: course, check out the hearing. I I can say from firsthand experience, they do uh, depose their their guests, their witnesses, and but it's really a top notch uh, production. The, the The production quality is really high, and the interviews are are great. I really found a lot of great. Uh, nuggets of information in in your podcast. So thanks for sharing that.
2: Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me on today.
0: And if you enjoyed this episode, why don't you share it? Send it to one of your friends or your family. And if you're so inclined, leave us a five-star review. It's a great way to tell Brett Amron thank you. Brett, thank you. Lauren, thank you. Nelson, thank you. This is wonderful. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Lauren. For more information on this show and other resources, Visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.